Good morning. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at a few things in there this morning. And before we get into the lesson and deal with that, there are a couple other things I need to do. Uh, one of them is, uh, Scott Ruska called me early this morning, and he is teaching a class on interpreting the Bible over in the West Fellowship Hall, and he's not going to be able to be here for that. And Scott Dooley is out of town, and he had asked me to fill in for him teaching First Thessalonians, and I agreed to do that. Apparently now I've got a combined class back in the whole fellowship hall doing First Thessalonians in there for everybody. So if you're not in the class in here with Jack on the Gospel of John, or if you'd like to come in here for that and for this week, you're more than welcome to, or to Bob Chambers' class in uh, Room 104, you're welcome to do that as well. But there's going to be a whole gang of us back there in the West Fellowship Hall, and you're welcome there as well, okay? Second thing I need to do, last week in my lesson I said something that really should have been said, didn't mean to say it, and boy, it came out bad, and it was, it was rather offensive. And I want to apologize for saying that. Uh, it was not my intention to do that, and I didn't want to say anything or construe anything as being uh, offensive, and yet sometimes... Uh, Preachers can stick their foot in their mouth, and I have more experience with that than I think any other preacher I've ever met. And it was, uh, again, the the point I was trying to make was that compared to Israel's commitment to the priority of family and efforts to provide family structure and physical care, material necessities, emotional security, intellectual encouragement, and moral values and spiritual teaching, our contemporary society takes way too casual of an approach when it comes to the matter of divorce. And that in turn leaves the children of divorce with a lot of emotional scars that can weaken their faith, that can interfere with their spiritual growth, and and God never intended for that to happen. Uh, Divorce often saddles children with baggage that God doesn't want them to have to carry. Uh, It can bring emotional turmoil and anxiety and conflict and just produce a big set of obstacles to spiritual growth. And my intent was not to imply that children of divorce become hopeless or non-productive. But help is needed to help balance them through the course of all of that. And uh, it's important for me that you see what my intent was, and uh, hopefully you won't judge me too harshly for having made such a bad verbal mistake. And I apologize for that. I'm very sorry and sincerely sorry for what happened in... uh, God willing, that will never happen again. I don't want to say that and uh, don't want that to happen again like that. And So I ask that you forgive me for that. I, I apologize for that bad faux pas. Children, I don't care who they are, can be productive. And all they need some help and some encouragement to do that. Would you bow with me, please? Let's pray. Father in heaven. As we consider this week the birth of a Savior, as we consider what that means to all of mankind, we consider that there's a lot of turmoil also around that. There are a lot of people who don't want to celebrate that. There are a lot of people who choose uh, to reject him. And I'm sorry that they, they feel that way and they choose that. And for those of us who have chosen to accept him as our Savior, to believe that he is the answer for all of our needs... I thank you, Father, for having provided him for each one of us who who hold to that. And may we, Father, as we reconsider some of the thoughts surrounding the birth and the growth of, of Jesus Christ, 
that we remember that him coming into this world, his growing up the way he did, helped make it possible for him to become the Savior that he is. And I ask your blessings, Father, that the thoughts shared will be uh, thoughts that come from your word, thoughts that will help us out, and thoughts that will build us up in our walk with you. And also help to equip us that we would have something to share with those who don't know Jesus. And maybe they would reconsider. Maybe give them another opportunity to see that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. And thank you, Father, for making that possible. And we offer this in Jesus' name. And amen. The Gospel of Luke is becoming more and more one of those books that just absolutely fascinates me. Um, Luke's writing style. The way he explains things, he said in chapter 1, verse 3, that he had traced the course of all things from the first. He he did a very meticulous and very intricate job of of looking through and studying the details and writing down everything that he has in his gospel. And when it comes to looking at at Jesus Christ and his entry into the world and his growth as a youngster, uh, that's also included in those thoughts. And uh, there are some stories here in chapter 2 that he's going to deal with and he's going to look at. And, and I want to just take a brief glance at them. There, there is so much in this chapter. I, there's no way that I can cover it all. But just to cover maybe uh, two or three thoughts that will help us and help us appreciate a little bit more who he is and, and what he should mean to each one of us. Uh, we'll, we'll talk in the first story about his birth. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got to thinking, you know, as good of a job as Rodney did with the Lord's Supper and his comments that we should just offer an invitation and go on. You've, you've already preached a good sermon, brother. That was, that was outstanding. Um, the second one, we, we look at him, you know, as he is uh, brought to the temple for the purification rites uh, that are done and, and the aged Simeon who is there. And we'll say, you know, I've seen him and now I'm ready for your servant to depart. It's, it's okay to die now. I've, I've seen your answer for mankind. And in the third story, he's going to describe that what happened is Jesus grows up in, at the age of 12. And, and I'm fascinated with this because my grandson is, is 10 and a half, and he, he fascinates me with some of the things that come out of his mouth and how interesting he is. And uh, this youngster, Jesus, at 12 years of age and what he has to say, absolutely incredible. Uh, I, I mentioned last Sunday night in uh, talking about chapter 1 and and some of the things there for our devotional that, uh, you know, I'm fascinated with the circumstances under which uh, Luke learned of these events and how he wrote them down. Uh, The book of Acts, chapter 21 and verse 17, tells us that uh, uh, Luke comes to Jerusalem, evidently, with Paul and comes at a time just before he's arrested and, and he's accompanying him. And Paul is eventually going to be arrested and put in jail for two years. And here's Luke. Luke's going to hang around Jerusalem and and that area for two years. What do you do? How do you spend your time? And and one of the things I think presumably that that takes place is uh, behind chapters 1 and 2 of Luke's gospel, there must have been some long conversations that took place uh, between Luke and particularly Mary, although I think some of the other uh, apostles who might have been there at that time and some of the other disciples to talk about what that was like to have been with Jesus, but particularly Mary, to go back and to look and to talk with her. Uh, you know, can you even imagine what that was like to have those conversations? 
how that took place, how they came up. Um, uh, Mary, by the way, I'm going to be writing a gospel, and, and I'm going to record some things. Could you give me some stories? I don't think it was quite that formal. On the other hand, you know, Mary's saying, oh, goodness, you know, there's so many things I could tell you about him and, and to tell. And typically we have, you know, a parent's going to have some stories that stand out more than others. And, and Luke chooses certain ones that, that Mary remembered, and, and he writes them down. And, you know, maybe we could ask ourselves, why did he choose these particular stories? Why did he record these? Why not some others? You know, why did he relate them the way that he did? Uh, how does this chapter fit into his general scheme of things and, and what he's having to say? And I'm not sure I have all the answers to that, but there are some things I find... Um, rather important for my faith, and, and hopefully they will be for yours as well. So I want to look a little bit in, in some of the things that are involved here in, in Luke chapter 2, and first of all to notice that there are three stories. There are three stories that are being told. And the first one has to do with the angel in verses 1 through 21. And boy, what a story that is indeed. Uh, for some people, the story of the birth of Jesus is all they will ever know about Christianity. But interestingly enough, for Luke, it was just one little paragraph of, of seven verses. And somebody estimated that in his entire gospel, he's got over a thousand verses. So to speak about the birth of Jesus, he only uses seven. But boy, they are power-packed. And there's a lot that's said just within those few verses. And that's not to say he treats this incredible great event in in just a, a a minute way only seven verses it's to say that it it fits in there and it's beautifully cut down to show that you know if you if you look at that and you linger over just those verses oh it's powerful it's brilliant it's it's beautiful to look at it that way for on the one hand as he writes to theophilus he's bringing the greco-roman world of that day into contact with the Jewish world. Because remember, uh, Luke is writing after the fact. These things took place back there. Luke is writing now to second generation Christians. And the story he has to share is, is one that's designed to, to encourage and to help and uh, for people to see. You know, something that, uh, as Luke would record, you know, which the Lord has made known. It's not simply an event, it's a revelation. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says that at the right time, at the apex of time, the, the very peak of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God intervened in mankind. He intervened into humanity. He came to visit and the event is from the point of view that says, you know, this is the turning point of history. It really is. Everything led up to Jesus coming into this world and everything falls away from that. It's a watershed of history. The watershed, if you will. You know, a watershed, as I understand it, where is that, that point where rivers start to flow away in one direction and then they start to flow back to another direction. This is the watershed moment of history, Jesus coming into this world. And it's a divine message which the angel brings concerning Jesus. It's not just a message. 
It's not just a religious message. It's a divine message. God is speaking to mankind. The second story takes place in verses 22 through 40. And it's, it involves the prophets, two prophets particularly. Anna, who is deliberately called a prophetess. And Simeon, who speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit. And interestingly enough, they're described as being twinned characters. Uh, they're both old. They're both devoutly religious. They're both looking for the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. But I think more importantly, they're both part of the remnant. Those folks who have held on with every fiber of their being to believe God is going to keep his promise. God has been silent for 400 years. And now God has chosen to speak again, to enter into uh, the world of humanity. And all those promises he had made hundreds of years ago through the other prophets, he has now fulfilled them. God has kept his promise. And Simeon gets a little bit more of the press than Anna does, if you will. But it's a, it's a comment that tells us uh, this is very important. And if you look at verse 33, his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Again, divine comments. And, and the word is not coming from an angel this time, but from a prophet. One who speaks for God. One who speaks about God. One who speaks the word of God. And God is still talking. God is still speaking. He has fulfilled his promise to enter into humanity and to help out. To help humanity out. And the third story is about the child Jesus himself in verses 41 through 52. And here's the story. The the family has come to visit uh, at at a festival in Jerusalem. And the visit is not the important thing. As a matter of fact, when you read the sentences, uh, uh, it was pointed out to me as I was studying this, there's really only one verb, one main verb that's involved in all of this, and, and it's the last one, and it has to do with the idea of Jesus stayed behind. The reading would go something like this. When he was 12, they had gone up, and when the feast was ended and they were returning, Jesus stayed behind. That's what Luke wants to emphasize here. That's what he wants to stress in all of this. And, you know, of, of that three days stay among those teachers there at the temple, that's just fascinating to contemplate in itself, isn't it? Because on the one side, you've got the family who's gone home, and they're thinking he's, you know, with the rest of the traveling band back here. We haven't seen him. And, and I know my wife well enough to know if she hadn't seen one of her little kids for three days, you know, one day's not going to work, let alone three. Where are they? You know, where is he? And, but after three days, they, the assuming is, you know, something's happened. He's not here. He's not with them. On the other hand, we know exactly where he's at based on what Luke says. And, and Luke doesn't give us all the details. But here is the one who is uh, staying behind. Here is the one who, uh, he, he himself has a prophetic word that he offers and uh, something to say. And what he says tells us something about who he is. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we, as we see that. But like the other two sayings, 
in these stories, it's a divine word. But this one doesn't come from an angel. This one doesn't come from a prophet. This one comes from God himself in the flesh. And I find that rather fascinating to consider. So, the, the central figure in each of these three stories has to do with one who is conveying an important declaration from God concerning this son of Mary. You really need to focus on who he is. The second thing to notice is that there are three sayings. And I've kind of alluded to those, but I want to look at them a little bit uh, more carefully uh, in all of that. Messages that have come from God. Inspired oracles, if you will. And, and if you go down and you look through in, in, uh, in some of the verses, uh, like verse 17 through 20, what was told. Uh, in verse 33, what was said. In verse 50, what was spoken. Uh, there's a word that's used there that has really gotten my attention in light of some study that was done uh, back this summer at a, at a uh, retreat that I attended. And the word is, the, is rima. And rima is just saying, you know, we can easily translate it that way. But when it's used in the scriptures, it has something to do with the voice of God. And I have found that one to be absolutely incredible to consider. These aren't just sayings. It's the voice of God speaking. It's not just an angelic host. It's, it's an angel conveying the voice of God. It's not just a, a prophetic voice. It's a prophet who speaks something he's gotten from God. And again, it's God himself who speaks and what he has to say. And if you notice what the angel said, uh, the baby's name is given prior to the birth. I, I love just kind of considering all of that, what's involved. Uh, you know, ask a pregnant lady, uh, is, is it a boy or a girl? Well, we really don't know yet. Ask Mary, it's a boy. Holy Spirit already told me. You have a name picked out. Oh, yeah, his name's Jesus. Where'd you come up with that? God told me. That's, that's what his name's going to be. Many times when you pick out a name for a child, it says something more about the parents than it does the child. You don't even know anything about the child. But it says something about uh, what the parents think. I, I can remember Vicky and I going back and thinking about what we're going to name the, the children, you know, and, and how, what our line of reasoning was and why. Sometimes we, uh, with both of my daughters, they have a middle name that, that we got from uh, friends of ours who had that for a first name, and, and we liked it. So we had Tammy Deanne, and then we had Heather Leanne. They just kind of rhymed, so that made it all cool, you know, just, just go with it. But not with Jesus. His name tells you more about him than it does about his parents. It tells you something about who he is, what he is. He's the one who came to bring, Luke says, good news. And the only way you really bring good news, ultimate good news to humanity, is to bring a message about salvation. Not only is God indeed at work in salvation, but he's about to accomplish that work once and for all through this, this actual son of Israel who's going to come into the world, who lies wrapped in swaddling clothes and, and lying in a manger. That's the one. That's the one. And so uh, you get the names that are given to him. He's not just called Jesus, and the name means Savior. Savior. 
The one who can rescue all of mankind from, from sin, from misery, from mortality. The one who can bring all the blessings that will meet all the possible needs that they will ever have. Then and then only can you sing about peace on earth because of the Savior. But he's not only called Savior, he's also called Messiah. That's in Hebrew. He's called Christ in the Greek. This is the one that God has authorized. This is the one whom God has appointed. He's the only one fit. He's the only one qualified to be appointed by God to take care of mankind. Revelation chapter 4, chapter 5, the the great throne scene there in heaven. And John starts crying. Nobody can break the seals of that great book. And a voice behind him says, stop your crying. And he turns and he sees a lamb standing as though slain. Here's the one who can break the seals. Jesus, the Christ. He's the only one who can do that. But even more than that, he's given the title Lord. Luke in his gospel In a little more than one chapter, we'll use some 20 times the word Lord, speaking about the God of Israel. And now he takes this title, Lord, and he'll apply it to Jesus himself. He's going to be given that name. It's a very fascinating thing to do because God is the one who does saving work. Yeah, that's right. God is the one who appoints all that we need. God is the one who has authority for all of that. It's it's God himself. Who has come in the flesh? That's right, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And to him and nowhere else is salvation to be found. You know, can you say enough about him? Can you, can you hear enough about him just in that name? And the way people use that name today in such a base way is just a cheap expletive of their emotions. Oh, Lord, or Jesus Christ. You need to stop and think again about who he is based upon what was said about him. Look at what the prophet said. Simeon will give thanks to God. And he will describe him as being the one who is the, uh, Jesus is to be for all of mankind. He describes in a way to say, here's God's universal offer to all of mankind. That's been hinted at a little bit in some of the things that were said. It was said to the shepherds, you know, the, uh, in, in a very respectable way. Here, here's what's there. Here's, here's the one who is coming. But this is for all the people, all of mankind, for all ages. He is to be a light to the Gentiles. A light for those who have sat in darkness for so long. And they've wondered and they've pondered and they've guessed. He's to be offered to all of mankind, but he's to be considered by each person. He's to be a universal offer, but he will bring a personal challenge to everyone who considers that. And there will be those who speak against this sign of God's love that's been offered. But he still will be the one who searches the hearts of people. Some are going to be scandalized by this whole notion of salvation and and how it's going to be achieved. And, And Simeon says, and a sword, Mary, will pierce your heart. And she pondered all these things that were said about him. And she put them up in her heart. But there's none to whom the message is not directed. And it speaks of the generosity of God. 
generosity and yet responsibility. Here's everything you need found in this child who will grow up to be your savior. And it requires people to ask, have you, have you accepted him as being that? Or are you, are you rejecting him in some way in your life? And then notice what the child himself said. Isaiah 63 and verse 16 says, Thou, O Lord, art our father. That's what the Jews would say of God. You are our father. He's the one who, who brought their nation into being, who formed them from Father Abraham. And his fatherhood was something that belonged so uniquely to them. And yet, they'd never fully grasped the, the content of, of his fatherhood for them and, and what that fatherhood meant. In John 5 and verse 18, they're upset because Jesus is putting himself as being equal with God and, and calling God his father when God is their father. How can you do that? So the first recorded words of Jesus, when you look at the, at the end of this chapter, did you know I must be in my father's house? Had to be startling. And this is the first that these children, or children, that these parents have heard of that. What about the, those who have been listening for three days to him is he, as they marveled at what he had to say and the, and the wisdom that came out of his mouth? It's a relationship he has, and he's going to bring all others into that relationship with him. And there's a, there's a particular word that's used throughout chapter 2. It's used three or four times, I think. And it's the word glory. And when you think of the word glory, you think of the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. God showed his glory and it just baffled people. And all that glory now is seen in the Son. It's seen in this one Jesus. And Luke is letting us know, here is the one, as he grows up more and more into being what he should be, for us to see that. The songs that were sung this morning were so applicable to what's being said here in Luke chapter 2. Blessed assurance. Because, you see, Jesus didn't come to provide mere spiritual insurance, but yet he did come to make sure that there is spiritual assurance. He's not just a token insurance policy when you need him. He provides the assurance throughout every day of your life and every aspect of what you're doing. So that brings me to the idea that there are three thoughts I want to leave you with this morning. You know, this is that kind of, so what? what? You know, what do we do with all of this? First of all, realize this. The meaning of Jesus' birth has no meaning without God's explanation of it. Otherwise, he's just another baby born in time. Nobody special. Just another wonderful aspect of that divine thing that we call childbirth. Just another fascination to all of that. But the angel comes in and says, oh, no, 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 no. I come as a messenger of God. The prophet says, no, no, no. It's, it's, uh, God's explanation is he's fulfilling what he promised to you. He's keeping that promise. And Jesus himself said, I'm about my father's business. And the father's business is saving mankind and taking care of them. All these things which she had been told concerning her child, she kept them in her heart, Luke 2.17 says. Fortunately, they didn't stay in her heart. They came out to have a meaning and application for all of us. 
And secondly, the meaning of Jesus' birth means grasping fully the message of salvation. He's not just born in a manger to be a baby remembered wrapped in swaddling clothing. He's not just a 12-year-old who who is in uh, the temple with the wise men just confounding them with these incredible sayings that he has. He is the one who becomes the Savior from cradle to grave. He's someone very, very special. Not only cradle to grave of his, but cradle to grave of our own. He's the one who came and lived here. He is the one who came and brought a life that reflected him and, and reflected again God's glory, that, that glory they couldn't behold. We've beheld it, Jesus. And you and I have only beheld it as we've read the scriptures and pondered over them and wondered, what is that really like to see him face to face? And thirdly, the meaning of Jesus' birth bids us follow the ones who already know where Jesus is today. You want to follow him? They know where he's at. They followed him. And we're to do the same thing, follow him. Don't just stay here on earth and be celebrated once a year. Make it part of your everyday life. Make it part of of everything that you ever hope to do with your life. He resides in heaven at the right hand of God. Jesus grew up. He's all grown up. And we need to let him grow up. Don't just celebrate him as that beautiful baby that came into this world. Celebrate him as the beautiful baby who grew up to be the savior of all of mankind. And he hopefully has touched your heart deeply in that way. And yet the Bible says you and I are also to grow up in all things into him who is the head. We're to be the body that fashions with the head so that we look like what God designed us to be through this Savior. I'm not sure I understand all of why Luke picked just these stories and why he put them in, in there the way he did. I'm glad he did. The birth of this peasant child is an omen, a sign of good things. Not an omen in the way that the pagans think about that. It's just, ooh, there's something here we don't understand. Uh, This is a sign of good things. This is who he is. But he only becomes that good omen for you when he becomes a part of your life. And the only way he can do that is when you listen to the words of the angel. Listen to the words of the prophet. Listen to the words of the Christ himself. I've come to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19 and verse 10 says. And he still seeks to do that as the Savior, as the the consolation, the redemption of Israel for all of mankind. Won't you look in your heart? Won't you look and see where you need him? Won't you make the response that you need to? And we'll help you in any way we can. You can go to room 104. There are elders who will pray with you and strengthen you that way. You can come up front. We'll we'll help baptize you into Christ, pray with you. Whatever we need to do, you come while we stand and while we sing.